Luke chapter 7, um, verse 7. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent home elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went to them with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I told this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servants, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we are looking at, during the summer uh, term, just the, the kind of five or six weeks when our services are slightly different, they're slightly shorter, um, we don't have the children's groups. By the way, if there's some packs at the back there, I don't know if Sue has been uh, doing her stuff, if you want to get a pack, there's some uh, puzzles and quizzes and word searches and activities to do inside this pack, feel free to do that. If you've got younger children and you really uh, need to, then there's a, a room out the other side that you can go, but you're very welcome to keep them in with you and um, I'll try and keep this as short as possible. Uh, over this series that we're over the summertime, we're looking at uh, encounters with Jesus. So we're looking at people, especially in the Gospels, uh, people who came into contact with Jesus. Last week, um, Joe looked at Peter, the disciple, who encountered Jesus as he walked um, across the water, or attempted to walk across the water to him. And this week, we're looking at a very different uh, character, um, in fact, this character, as you might have realized from the reading we had, didn't actually even meet Jesus, it appears, or at least not in this passage anyway. But that doesn't mean to say that we can't learn things uh, from uh, his encounter uh, with Jesus nonetheless. And the question that we're trying to answer as we're looking at these encounters uh, that people have had with Jesus is really what it means to walk with Jesus, not just in theory, not just in name only, but what does it mean for the um, Jesus' early followers and what does it mean for me and you to actually walk alongside Jesus? Not just on a Sunday when we come to church and we pray and we worship and we do all those things, but on our Monday to Saturday lives as well. Perhaps Monday when we're in the staff meeting at work or Wednesday when we're having a coffee with a friend or a neighbor or Saturday when we have to go and take our children to the dreaded birthday party on Saturday afternoon with 40 other children. Sorry, that, the birthday parties are great, aren't they? You love them all. My kids are 17 and 19 now. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, so what, is it, what does it mean for our faith um, to work itself out in, in the real world, in our Monday to Saturday lives? But when you start to look through the New Testament, there's one kind of short phrase that comes back again and again and to describe what it means to walk with Jesus. And that is to walk in faith, to have faith in Jesus. And that little word faith um, is one of the perhaps 
misused and maybe least understood uh, words um, in the New Testament especially. Often it's talked about as something that we've attained or something that we admire in others, their faith. You know, if I'm, if I'm out somewhere and I'm meeting people new, especially if, you, I don't know, you go to dinner with people and there's other people that you don't know and you have the polite conversation and someone says to you, what do you do? Well, I work full-time here, All Souls, and part of my job is doing this kind of stuff. So I'm a lay minister here, so part of it is leading worship and, and preaching and things like that. But four days of the week, I work in the back office there, and I you know, deal with all the buildings and with the staff team and the policies and all that kind of stuff that, that needs to be done. And depending on how I'm feeling, if someone I'm speaking to says, well, what do you do for a living? It really depends on how I'm feeling at that time. Do I want to get into this conversation? Do I say, I'm a lay minister at a church? Or actually, do I say, Actually, I'm a church manager. I deal with the drains and the things like that. You know, I just uh, deal, with, deal with that. Because if once you say, oh, you're a lay minister at a church, you get a, a, a certain response. Some people, you can metaphorically see their eyes roll back in their head and go, oh, great. Now I've got to watch my P's and Q's and I've got to be really polite. And other people might, might want to talk about it. And often I've had people say as well, oh, I really admire your faith. I really admire your faith. Almost as if that's something that, you know, it was a talent that I was born with or it was a skill that I've spent many years developing. As if faith is kind of some sort of badge of honor that you can wear. But of course, the Bible doesn't speak about faith in that sense at all. And what Luke does here, he cashes this out by telling stories of people who met Jesus and who were described as people of faith. And in Luke chapter 7, he tells us what faith looks like in the lives of two people. We've only got time to look at one of them um, this morning. This is the one that we're looking at in the morning, a centurion. No idea if he'd addressed like that or if it looked like that, but that's kind of our stereotypical view um, of what a centurion was in those days. Probably not someone who was actually in charge of 100 people. Maybe that isn't what the original word meant there, but certainly he was a Roman soldier. He was certainly someone who was in leadership. Um, probably not part of the empire's ruling force, but he was certainly part of the, the local uh, militia or the kind of the police force under the command maybe of, of Herod Agrippa or Herod Antipas at that time. But he was certainly a Roman. He wasn't a Jew or a Gentile. At the end of chapter 7, if you want to read on at a later date, we get someone who's very, very different. A person uh, who has, uh, has faith, and we look at that one, and it, it's, it's a, a, a woman who's a prostitute very well known by the, the local community for her lifestyle there. Very different people, but what we find out is that faith looks pretty much the same wherever we find it. It's just worked out in different ways, lived out differently, but at the same, uh, at one level, it's the same core faith. It's got the same basic DNA. So we go to the start of our reading today, uh, our story. If you've got your Bibles there, you can follow along with it as well. Jesus is speaking to a crowd. He's just been talking to them in the previous chapter on a number of things. And a group of religious leaders uh, come to him with a message. They come from this centurion. And the bottom line is they're absolutely determined to speak well of this centurion. Basically, what they're saying is, here's this centurion. He's got this need, he's got this servant, he really cares for who he really values, and he's really sick, and he really needs you to come and heal him. But 
this centurion, they say, he's worthy. He's a really good guy. He's kind, he's generous, he's kind to the Jewish people. He's even sacrificially generous in the fact that he's built them a synagogue. And I think what's going on here is that this group of um, elders have come to Jesus, and what they're assuming is that Jesus' default position is going to be, no, this guy's a Roman, I'm not going to do anything for him. He's not a Jew, I'm not going to do anything for him because he's a Roman. So the elders come and they really want to big up this centurion and say how great he is. They say he really deserves it, he's a really good guy. They plead earnestly with Jesus. Verse 4, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation. He's built a synagogue. Verse 6, so Jesus went with them and verse 10, he healed the servant and everybody went home. Well, that's what we expect to happen when you get to that point. I mean, we know what does happen because we've read through it. But if you were just hearing that story for the first time, the assumption would be, yes, we know, we've read the Gospels, we know Jesus heals people. They've come to him with a request. It says he's gone with them. He gets there, he heals the servant, he goes away, scene. We move on to the next. But I think something more surprising happens here. In verse 6, it says, Jesus was not far from the house when this centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. So what's going on here? Why have we got this change of heart in this centurion? Why has he got an odd response like this to Jesus coming? It's not like he's doing some sort of double bluff and he's really trying to encourage Jesus to come. Because Jesus is on the way anyway. He's, he's coming over. So what is he saying and why is it so important? And why is it that when we get to the end of the story, Jesus is able to say, look at this man's life. If you want to understand faith, if you want to understand great faith, here's the best example I've ever seen. You want a good example of faith? Here's the guy. So what is going on here? So I'd suggest very briefly, there's two things that this centurion gets about faith, even perhaps if he wouldn't articulate it in that way as in faith means, I think through his actions here, there's a couple of things that he really gets about faith. And the first thing that he gets is that faith is a gift and it's not a transaction. Faith is a gift, it's not a transaction or a purchase. So there's an odd thing going on here. On one hand, you've got the elders that come to Jesus and they say, look, this centurion's a really good man. He deserves this healing. They're essentially requesting a transaction. They're basically saying, look, spiritually, he's rich enough to pay for your favor of doing the healing for him. He deserves it. He's got some stuff to offer. He's done all this stuff as well. He's built up all this kind of spiritual currency, therefore, you'll do this for them. It's like going into some sort of celestial shop with some spiritual coins in your pocket, putting them on the counter saying, I'll have a pound of healing, please. Thank you very much. That's basically what this, the, the elders are coming to say it. He deserves it. He can pay for it. They're painting a picture of a life that deserves Jesus' friendship and action. But with the centurion, it's slightly different. 
See, the logical thing you'd have thought is if, if when Jesus was going to the house, he'd had second thoughts. Maybe he'd looked at himself metaphorically in the mirror and thought, you know, I'm not really sure I do deserve this Jesus coming over here. I don't have the spiritual cash to pay for this. The logical thing would be, I'm not worthy. Don't bother coming to my house. But he doesn't say that, actually. He says, I haven't got the spiritual cash to pay for it. I'm not worthy, but come anyway. So the thing that's actually happened to the centurion is not simply a change of heart in the sense of coming to his senses and realizing his humility. Actually, what he's done is realize that this is a gift. Faith in Jesus is a gift. And perhaps the best picture that we have um, for this sort of faith in our terms is this image that we use quite often when we, uh, when we come to prayer here at All Souls. Just a simple pair of empty hands stretched out. Hands that we put out to receive the gift of God that he gives us in Jesus. So the challenge that the centurion had was to have empty hands. He'd worked incredibly hard to be worthy, to be deserving. He'd been generous. He'd been kind towards the Jewish people. He'd been sacrificially generous with his money to build a temple. His hands, metaphorically speaking, were full of good things. And these were genuinely good things. We're not saying that they weren't. He was a kind man. He was a generous man. But the problem is, if our hands are full and someone offers us a gift, we've got a choice. We can either say, actually, no, I prefer what I've got in my hands now. Thank you very much. I won't accept the gift. Or you can use what you've got in your hands as a kind of transaction. Say, well, uh, essentially, I'll swap it. I've got all this stuff, and I do want what you've got there, but I'll swap it over. I'll do a transaction. I'll buy what you've got for me. Or we can put down what's in our hands, lay it in front of us, and accept freely a gift that's given to us. And it's what happens again and again is described uh, in the New Testament again and again, that we recognize our hands in, in our lives are full of really good things. I mean, there's nothing here that implies that Jesus didn't think this was a really kind man or a generous man. There's certainly nothing in Scripture that says those things are anything other than really good symptoms of a well-lived faith. They're good things. But if the centurion thought he was going to have to pay for Jesus' work with them, then they were just filling his hands with, with kind of stuff that was getting in the way. And there are all sorts of things that can fill our hands and our lives with stuff that can get us away from receiving from Jesus, whether we've been following Jesus for many, many years or we're very new to faith, we can find our hands getting filled with things that are going to stop us receiving from Jesus. Maybe the stuff of our ambitions or our reputation or our family or our friendships or our career path, our leisure time, the stuff that we love in life. 
if I'm not careful, I start seeing those successes and those desires as what define me, as what most identify me. And they fill up my hands so full that I can't receive the good gifts that God has to give to me. It's not about throwing those things away or trampling them under my feet. It's about acknowledging what place they take in my life, laying them down on the floor and saying, I want to accept the good things that God has got to give to me as a free gift. And I don't think for a moment that the centurion stopped being a kind and a generous man. I'm sure that after meeting Jesus, he perhaps became even more so. But he'd recognized that this gift was not a transaction. He was never going to be worthy or deserving of this gift. He simply had to put out his hands of faith to receive it. Maybe that's easier and maybe we're better at that when we first come to faith than later on. When somebody first comes to faith, it's often just an overwhelming sense of, wow, this is for me. And it's easier to put stuff down and say, thank you, Jesus, for your gift of love and forgiveness. But as life goes on and I work harder and harder at my faith and I try to be a better and a better person and also just the normal stuff of life crowds in, I can forget the sheer giftedness of what God has done for me through Jesus. I'm not worthy, said the centurion. But he doesn't say, I'm not worthy, so don't do anything. He says, I'm not worthy, so just say the word and my servant will be healed. And I think that's the second thing about faith that he discovers, that he discovers that faith isn't an object in itself. It isn't this ethereal kind of thing out there. Faith it has a, a personal objective. You have faith in someone, in this case, faith in Jesus. And that's what this language that he talks about at the end about authority seems to be about. Lord, don't trouble yourself, verse 6. I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, my servant will be healed. For I myself are a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, he goes, that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does that. What he's saying here is I recognize authoritative power when I see it. In a, in a hierarchy, in a structure of power. And I know that I can put my faith in the one that holds that authoritative power. And then when I put my faith in that one, then it's not about my power, but it's about his. To use a, a different metaphor, here is a place that's so solid, so strong, that I can place my full weight on it. And it's going to do the heavy lifting. It's not about pulling myself up by my bootlaces. It's about being held and about being carried. You know, on Friday, um, I went somewhere which is probably my least favorite place in the world to go. And it may be for some of you as well. I had to go to the dentist. And I genuinely have very close to a phobia of dentists. So much so that I didn't go to the dentist for about... 25 years, yes, let's not talk oral hygiene now, 
Fortunately, my wife persuaded me to go back to a dentist a few years ago, and, and we've rectified a few issues. Um, but I had to, I, the other day, um, I had to go and I had to actually have an extraction. So I had to have a, a tooth taken out. It's a wisdom tooth, funnily enough. I don't know why I've got wisdom teeth, but there we go. Um, but it was one that wasn't matching another one. It was growing at a funny angle, whatever, needed to come out. And um, apart from being absolutely petrified of going, I had to go and um, sit in the dentist chair with a new dentist, it turns out, a new one that I'd never been to before, and to have this teeth taken out and have this extraction. Now, as it happened, I was petrified of going, but I assumed that this guy knew what he was doing. Fortunately, he did. He took a tooth out. I think it was the right one. And I'm still in one piece now, so that's, that, that's all good news. But it was regardless of how I felt about dentists, how I felt about oral hygiene and teeth, I could be absolutely completely confident in it. Yes, it's all well and good. But actually, I needed to have faith in that guy at that time. If he turned out to be a dental student, and that was his first time in the extraction, and he came at me with a pneumatic drill or something like that, things weren't going to end well, probably. I needed to have faith in the fact that this guy was qualified, he knew what he was doing, he'd done it a hundred times before, and he wasn't going to leave me in a bloody mess at the end of it. And fortunately, that was fine. We need to have faith in someone, not just in a concept. The centurion realized it wasn't just about his authority and power. He recognized that Jesus was a powerful authority that he could be sure of. And there's a little question that sits at the end of this chapter as we finish, which is probably worth looking at here. Jesus says, I've never seen such great faith. And yet elsewhere in the Gospels, if you, if you know them, you know there's stories about Jesus saying, actually, all you need is a tiny little bit of faith, a mustard seed of faith, the smallest seed that you could probably find out there. That's all you need, and you'll do remarkable things. Two hikers come to a canyon, and they come to a rope bridge, something like this one. Doesn't look the safest in the world, but they need to get to the other side. The first one, though, is full of confidence, full of faith, you might say. Strides out across it, no problem. Gets to the other side in a matter of minutes. The second hiker is very nervous. He puts a foot out to start with, holds on to the rope bridge, gives it a bit of a shake tries not to look down. Maybe he's had experience of rope bridges in the past that haven't gone well. But he tentatively puts his foot out and takes one step at a time. And half an hour later, with much shaking and trepidation, he's made it to the other side. It doesn't matter how much faith they had. It doesn't matter how much confidence they had, whether they were striding across with great faith at the beginning or they're very tentative and had small faith. Didn't matter. It's the bridge that's doing the heavy lifting. It's the bridge that's going to carry you. It's the bridge that is going to determine whether you get to the other side or not. It's not about how much faith we have or how much faith you think you have. It's who we put our faith in.
Our faith is in Jesus, the one who has the powerful authority from coming from being the maker of all things, the king who sits on the throne, the one who's given everything for us. And my faith is simply to put out those empty hands and receive from him. You see, the centurion realized that he wasn't worthy paying for this gift, and he recognized he simply had to put out his hands as they were to receive. And I wonder this morning if there's anything in our lives within our hands that is just filling up our hands to the extent that we find it difficult to accept the gift of God that he gives us in Jesus. Maybe it is things in our lives in terms of our work or our career or our family, our relationships, our money. Or maybe even we've been building things up subconsciously, the things that we do, maybe the good things that we do, thinking God will approve of me because I'll be able to spiritually pay for that. We need to recognize even the smallest faith that we have when we place it in Jesus is placed in the one who has the power to save and to heal and to rescue. And he calls us to walk in faith with him, not because of who we are and what we've done, but because of who he is and what he's done.